So Aaron grabs Doug by the front of his hospital gown and he says, Doug, get back here. God is not done with you yet. He prays for doctors. <coughs> and he leaves. Like, wow, all right. So we wait several more hours for the anesthesiologist, or excuse me, the neurologist to show up. And he walks in and his first words are, you know, it really disappoints me when people and doctors give up hope this early in the game. There's always room for hope. And my mom and I just looked at each other like, wow, he has no idea what he just said. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy, and we are your podcast hosts. Today, we are bringing you Tammy Dove's story. It's our second story from Western Montana. And you want to talk about a miracle? This story is wild. (laughs) It is so wild. When she first starts telling her story, you're kind of like, oh, and then you're like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you're listening with bated breath. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, her story is about that we serve a God of miracles. And, you know, so often we discount him in health-related crises. And she did not. She Mm -hmm. held on to her faith. And it was just so encouraging of just believing that God is bigger than we could ever imagine. So I can't wait for you to hear her story. Before Tammy's story, we do want to remind you we've got exciting news coming out in August. Yay! (laughs) Our second Bible study, When God Shows Up, Discovering God Through Stories of Freedom, is launching later this summer. So if you are not signed up for our email list, go to storytellerslive.org and sign up today by entering your email into the banner at the top of the page because you will want to be the first to know when the Bible study is available to ship. So go today to storytellerslive.org. Here's Tammy. I'm excited to be able to have this opportunity to share our story. I'm going to open it up by a quote by Teddy Roosevelt because I don't know how many of you ever have fought a battle and there's been people judging you and making comments about how you're doing it right and how you're doing it wrong. This quote is called The Man in the Arena. It says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the doer of the deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error. There is no shortcoming, but the one who actually does strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be without with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat, Theodore Roosevelt. Brene Brown quoted that quote in her book, Daring Greatly, and it just so resonated with me as we were the ones in the arena fighting the fight. To go back to the beginning of our story, January 3rd of 2012, I received a phone call that we all dread to get, informing me that my husband had been in a horrible accident. They found him dead under a sheet of metal out of the old stone container paper mill that had been shut down, and he was doing demolition. 
the four by 11 sheet of metal that he'd been cutting. <clears throat> He's left-handed. He was bracing with his right, cutting with the left. It was 11 feet tall and came over on top of him, knocking him to the ground, breaking four of his ribs and pushing all of the air out of his lungs. It was just him and one other man working that night and the other man was in the shop. Dan came back to find Doug underneath the sheet of metal with a purple face and purple tongue hanging out of his mouth. Dan was able to lift the four by 11 sheet of metal up, but he couldn't hold the 300 and some pounds up with one arm and pull 230 some pounds of dugout with the other. But by divine appointment, the fire department just happened to be on site to put out the small fire that could have been put out with a bucket or two of water or the fully charged fire hose that just happened to be laying there. They were able to get Doug's heart started, but he wasn't able to breathe. He immediately started having seizures due to lack of oxygen to the brain. Pause there and then backtrack a little bit. The interesting part of the story, as we look backwards, God was preparing us most of our life, obviously, but from the 11th, now, the 7th of December, in my Jesus Calling devotional, I read that morning, essentially, my presence is with you everywhere you go and in everything that you do. Even in the mundane things, I am there. And I laughed to myself, thinking, yeah, I know this. I read Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God years ago, and I understood that God was there with me when I was cleaning up the toilets and cleaning the dog stuff out of the kennel. He's that present. <clears throat> and... That morning, I had made the decision to go ahead and scrub out my shower. And for most of us, it's just easier to take a shower and clean the shower at the same time. I get out of the shower, and I'm toweling off, and I look up at the mirror, and over Doug's sink is a perfect cross of steam. And I thought to myself, wow, God, you even do showers. That's amazing. Well, it got really interesting because that cross stayed there for almost an hour and a half with the fan running in the bathroom. And that was the first sign that our lives were about to change. Within a few days, I picked up Napoleon Hill's book called Outwitting the Devil. And as I read that book, I just felt like scales were falling from my eyes as I was able to see in the spirit better and hear God's voice more clearly. I literally I told my husband, I said, I feel like I've walked into a new spiritual dimension after reading this book. And one of my biggest takeaways from that book was the devil uses fear and discouragement to keep us from God's best. So I had that little tool in my pocket. Well, then we get to the week before Christmas. It was the Sunday before Christmas. I have a dream at 3 o'clock. I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning having had this dream of a 12-ish-year-old boy that was wearing blue jeans, a gold-colored rugby shirt, and he had blonde spiky hair. I didn't recognize this boy, but I knew it was one of those occasional dreams that God had gotten my attention through. And I knew that the boy was troubled. Later that morning, we're walking into church, and a couple that we had met at barbecues were walking in ahead of us, to my knowledge that they had not attended our church before, but here they were. And lo and behold, the dad, Aaron, has blonde spiky hair, a gold-colored rugby shirt, and blue jeans on. And I'm like, well, this is rather interesting. So as we're in worship, the Holy Spirit gives me a message to share with Aaron and I go over after worship and I say, Aaron, I believe God has given me a word for you. He said, great. I said, once church is over, I will come share it. He said, absolutely. So church is over. Doug and I go over to share this word with Aaron, who's a big, burly construction working guy. And I, as I share with him, snot and tears are coming down his face and as he's in agreement that this is a word from God. So that's Christmas, the Sunday before Christmas, 2011. 
Well, then Christmas, or excuse me, New Year's Eve day, I had this overwhelming need to take my Christmas tree down. I put up a, a fresh cut tree the day after Thanksgiving, 15 foot tall. I did a, a theme tree every year and we have Christmas parties around the tree. Well, I, and I normally didn't take it down until the 6th of January, the 12th day of Christmas and my birthday. But here I am, New Year's Eve day at the tree, tearing it apart, going, why are you doing this? I put the ornaments back on. I went and did dishes. I was back at the tree, tearing it apart. And again, why are you doing this? You still have a week. I put the ornaments back on the tree. I went and did laundry. I, all day long, I fought the need to take this crazy tree down. And I finally said, God, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'll take the stupid tree down. I bought off everything except for the lights. The next day, New Year's Day, Doug is out walking with the dogs as I'm taking the lights off. <clears throat> he comes back and he walks in the door and, and he says to me, Tammy, I have a beyond butterflies, pregame jitters feeling in my stomach that God is going to do something significant in our lives this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? Because Doug just does, that's not how he operates. He's just a rock solid guy, <clears throat> not given <laughs> this crazy uh, prophetic bet that I seem to have. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. He said, I've never had this kind of a feeling before in my stomach, but it's really strong. I know God is going to do something significant in our lives. I'm like, okay. Well, the next morning, he says to me, that feeling is still there, and I know it's nothing that I've eaten. I'm like, are you kidding me? So we're now the 3rd of January. We pass like chips in the night. I come home from work. He's on his way to work. And um, I'm on the phone trying to rescue a dog, and the caller ID shows that it's his, his partner's phone number. And I knew immediately that something was wrong. And so I'm trying to get off the phone, and I still couldn't get off the phone. And he comes, Dan calls back, and I, I didn't catch it. Well, then Dan's wife, Katie, calls, and she says, Tammy, there's been a really bad accident. Doug's hurt really bad, and it doesn't look good at all. And I am just enveloped by this heavy, weighty presence of peace and strength. And literally, she's walking me, or I'm talking myself through every step, wait, trying to get ready to go, as my whole body just feels like it, it's gone into slow motion, and I'm walking through wet cement <clears throat> as shock is taking over my body. And this is like deja vu, because 17 years prior, my brother was crushed in a piece of railroad equipment and um, was dead when they found him, but they were able to resuscitate him immediately. So I, that was my faith builder 17 years prior, and my brother was in a coma for 30 days. So I get off the phone with Katie, and I hear what I understand to be an audible voice that says, Tammy, this is going to be the hardest journey of your life, but if you trust me, Doug is going to be okay. So, all right, I'll buckle up. I had been an x-ray tech, oh gosh, for 20 years, I think, at that point. I was working at Western Montana Clinic, but I had trained at St. Pat's, and I had seen some bad stuff. And medically, everything that I knew agreed that Doug was not going to survive this, but I held on to that hope. I drove, I called my mom who met me at what was the then nine mile house and um, we made the rest of the drive together. And again, talking about how this was just like deja vu with my brother's situation. And we get to the hospital and I walk up to the reception desk and I say, hi, I'm Tammy Dub. I understand you have my husband here. And the very first words that I heard in response to that was my heart sank. I wanted to vomit because at that point I was sure my husband had died. Well, as it turns out, you no, know, he was in surgery being intubated to be, to be put on a ventilator. But yeah, it was like, how does the enemy play wicked tricks on us? 
Um, so then the doctor finally came and he said, you know, there's no way that Doug is going to make it. With as long as he's been without oxygen, there is just absolutely no way short of a miracle for him to pull through. And should he get the miracle and survive this, he most likely would be in a vegetative state for the rest of his life. So I had to pull up every ounce of faith I had and contend for his life. And knowing that the doctors and nurses I had trained under were saying, you know, she's not paying attention to us. And they tell me this later that, you know, you didn't hear a word that we had to say. You know, we're telling you that your husband is not going to make it and you're in denial. And that was not the case. Well, they had to put Doug on ice, as we call it. It's a hypothermic protocol where they cool off the organs so all the blood can go to the brain and allow the brain to have a better chance of recovery. We had to wait 24 hours to be able to determine if that was going to be effective or not. And when we got there, sure enough, everybody's face was very dejected, indicating that it was not effective. And that's when Dr. Lemire said to me, you know, your husband is just not going to And I wanted to say at that point, get behind me, Satan, but I didn't. And I, you know, I fully respect his medical experience. And so within that next day, we're waiting for a second opinion from the anesthesiologist, or excuse me, neurologist. And in the meantime, Aaron calls a mutual friend and said, I was supposed to go to work today, but I can't get off my face in intercession for Doug. I need to come to the hospital and pray for him. And I'm like, absolutely. So Aaron shows up. His eyes are bloodshot from crying. He's disheveled. And he said, tell me, my father-in-law's had a stroke. He's in every bit as critical condition as Doug is. I can't pray for him, but I can't not pray for Doug. I said, come on in. So Aaron grabs Doug by the front of his hospital gown and he says, Doug, get back here. God is not done with you yet. He prays for doctors. And he leaves. Like, wow, all right. So we wait several more hours for the anesthesiologist, or excuse me, the neurologist to show up. And he walks in and his first words are, you know, it really disappoints me when people and doctors give up hope this early in the game. There's always room for hope. And my mom and I just looked at each other like, wow, he has no idea what he just said. Well, at this point, they have paralyzed Doug to control the seizures, and we're waiting until he no longer has to be paralyzed. They're pumping him full of anticonvulsants, and they're consulting with Mayo Clinic because Doug is not responding appropriately to this good doctor's um, experience, and he comes swearing out of Doug's room, stomping and saying he's never had a patient fail to respond to the level that Doug is failing to respond. So here this doctor gives us hope, and then he takes the hope away. And so I turned to one of the nurses who had been so optimistic about Doug's recovery, and I say, what do you think? Well, she throws her arms up, and she starts backing away from me. And I said, I'm not asking for you to diagnose. I'm asking, in your experience, what can you tell me? And she says, Tammy, you haven't heard a word that we're telling you. Your husband is most likely not going to make it, and if by some chance he does, he will never, ever be the man you married. You are essentially in living hell right now, and you need to find the brightest spot that you can, or excuse me, the darkest spot you can, have a really good cry, find the brightest spot that you can, and figure out how to live in the middle. And I said, I've heard everything that you said. I fully get it. But everything in here says, hang on, and until this changes, I ain't budging. So we wait a little longer, and in in this process, I believe it was when Dr. Lemire had told me that Doug wasn't going to make it. I just felt this little nudge from the Holy Spirit 
reminding me about Daniel and how Daniel had to wait 21 days for the answer to his prayer. And I felt like I was being told that I would know in 21 days whether that was going to live or not. His accident was the 3rd of January, 21 days is the 24th. 11 days into his accident, I finally had the opportunity to sit down with my Bible and read the book of Daniel. I got to chapter 4, chapter 10, verse 4, and it said, On the 24th day of the first month of the year, the angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. So we went through all these ups and downs where he wasn't going to make it, he was going to make it. And on the 24th of January, I go zipping into his hospital room, expecting him to be awakened in his right mind. And instead, the trauma coordinator tells me that Doug is in a vegetative state. He needs to be moved to a long-term care facility. They like the one in Post Falls, Idaho, but if I want to keep him in state, they can send him to Billings, but they don't recommend Billings. And I said, no, it's too soon to move him. I want him here for 30 days. My brother was in a coma for 30 days. I want to exercise my 30 days with the thing. Nope, you have to decide today. And I said, nope, I want him here for 30 days. And she said, nope. <laughs> we told you this day was coming, and today's the day you get to decide where he's going to go. And in my mind, I'm screaming, but God, you told me if I trusted you, and I have trusted you. And I go staggering out of ICU to be met by the social worker outside of the doors. And she said, well, what would Doug want? Would he want to live like this for the rest of his life? And I said, absolutely not. You're talking about a man whose nickname was Hercules. He was so physically strong. There is no way that he would want to live for any length of time in, in a state such as this. And we had just had the conversation days prior to the accident that our theory was is that we would prefer to live with quality of life rather than quantity of life. And I explained this to the social worker. And she says, well, then it's appropriate to terminate him. And I'm like, excuse me, terminate him? And she said, well, if you send him to a care facility, most likely they will not allow you to terminate it there. So if you want to do this, you need to do this now. I said, you've got to be kidding me. You know, we're at this point 21 days into the accident. He's breathing on his own, and he has a feeding tube for support. So we're going to pull the feeding tube and starve him to death, essentially. She said, well, that, those are the options. So I gathered my family and friends, and we started to pray, and still not knowing what to do. That evening, we're back in his room just contending for his life and well-being. And um, Dr. Bill Beckemeyer, who had been Doug's asthma pulmonologist since 1995, had just retired from ICU care three days prior to Doug's accident, walked in that night, and he said, tell me what's going on. And I told him, and he said, it's too soon to make this decision. And I said, well, that's what I thought. And he said, Doug needs to be here for 30 days before that decision is made. And he said, Bill, you've got my number. And he said, I will do everything in my power to ensure Doug is not moved for the full 30 days. And as I'm saying thank you, my brother and Doug's boss are screaming at me, Tammy, he's awake, he's awake, 21 days later, almost to the hour of the accident. That was the miracle working power of God. It was so amazing to see the light on in Doug's eyes and, and just to have our faith renewed. Our church at the time, we were part of Clark City Church, we had gone through six deaths that we had fasted and prayed, believing, we had prayed for the dead bodies, believing that God could still raise the dead. And finally, at last, we have a miracle. And Doug's progress was so amazing that within days, one of the neurologists wrote in Doug's progress chart, wow, across the whole page, the nurses brought it to me saying, we've never seen this happen before. And Doug ended up being over at the Providence Center and their rehab facility there. And again, he was 
He was exceeding everybody's expectations as he was coming out of the coma and the drugs. But what we didn't understand was how much brain damage had been done because of the lack of oxygen. And he would get these twitches and flop like a fish out of the water. And he couldn't, I mean, he would be walking and it was like his hard drive and his brain would lock up and he'd fall. And amazingly enough, one of the nurses said to us after Doug left the, the Providence Center, she said, when they first brought him over there, I looked at that and thought, what are we supposed to do with this? Because she didn't have any expectations for him to improve. And later she cried as she was telling me this, just saying how much he had exceeded anybody's expectations. And he had to come home. They, didn't, they were, weren't able to do any more for him here. And Missoula is not well set up to transition from being that critical to then stepping down in the care. And I had him at home taking him to outpatient care for two months, I believe it was, and he started going backwards in his progress. And I ended up having a conversation with Douglas Comp, and we sent him down to Omaha to Quality Living Institute where he spent seven months. And interestingly enough, too, in that whole thing, after I dropped Doug off in Omaha, I came back and I was just inquiring of the Lord how long he was going to be there. And God took me to Jeremiah 29, 10, where he says, when you've been in exile for 70 years, I will return home and restore your fortunes to you. And I knew 70 years was appropriate, but seven months was. And he was actually gone seven months to the day when he came back. In this process, um, it's, it's been really challenging. You know, I had a husband that was so physically strong and so able and could do anything and everything. And now I have a husband that cannot do anything and everything. And we're also battling with impulsivity, where he would just get up and go and try to do stuff, and he would fall flat on his face, and I would have to pick him up, and we'd go to the emergency room. His first wreck, I had built a small fire. We had, I'll back up just to Scotia. We had actually gone for a walk. Because of his falling, the physical therapist did not want to walk with him. But Doug was desperate to walk. So I would drive him out of Nine Mile, which is where we then lived, and down to the bike path at Frenchtown, and we would take a four-wheel walker, and we would start walking. And our first walk, we did four-tenths of a mile before I finally forced him to go back to the car because he was hell-bent on going as far as he could. But the problem was is he would go as far as he could, but then we still had to get all the way back, and there was no way to get back, and that was part of the impulsivity and the stubbornness that we contended with. Um, but we got home from our first walk, and I had started this fire, and I knew immediately that I had not gotten enough kindling. And so I was racing back to the woodshed to get more kindling to keep it going. And I told him to stay right where he was at in a nice, solid lawn chair. And I came back to find Doug face-planted into the crushed gravel in front of the fire pit with, as he'll tell you, this chair was stuck to his backside. He said, I was holding on to it so she couldn't pull it off and beat me with it. Because <laughs> I wanted to. Um, um, but his, he had split his lip in the gravel and peeled it clear to the side of his uh, nose and then chunks of flesh out of his forehead where the gravel had ripped his face apart. So we spent Easter Sunday evening in an ER getting 30 stitches put in his face. And we had multiple of these falls and things like this where his shoulders would dislocate and all the trips to the emergency room to go with it. And it began to take its toll on me, on my mental and I found myself in a dark, dark spiral. And my whole life, I had used food as a way to cope with my pain. 
But at this point, I started using alcohol to cope with my pain, full well knowing that it wasn't the answer and hating myself in the process. And I would cry out to God in those nights where I knew I had drank far too much and just say, this is not who I am. And he would say, Tammy, just trust the process. I, I've got you through this. Just trust the process. And what I understood as I finally got to a place where I became much healthier was that it's, it's in our struggles that we can help somebody else manage their struggles. And shortly after Doug's accident, an older friend at church came to me and said, I just really want to encourage you. Her first husband died of Lou Gehrig's disease about 30 years ago. They still had children that were around 9 and 12 years old. She was working full-time and caring for her husband and came in one night. And at this point, he progressed to where he was only comfortable in his recliner. And as she walks through the door, exhausted from work and caring for him, he says to her, I'm so uncomfortable. Would you please adjust my pillows? And in her exhaustion and frustration, she took the pillow and she started to smother him with it. And she said, are you more comfortable now? She told me, I didn't finish it, but can I tell you how ashamed I was of my behavior? But I want you to know that you are going to get to this place and don't be surprised when it comes. And the days came and they came over and over again as I actually wished that Doug would have died because he was making me so frustrated and crazy and angry and the things that he was doing, the things that he was saying to me, he said stuff to me that he never, ever would have said prior to the accident. And it was just like a knife to my heart. And here I was sacrificing everything for his well-being, and yet it wasn't enough. And I'm dying on the inside. But yet God continued to be faithful. He continued to meet me every single day. And there were days that I couldn't feel his presence. <clears throat> But in one of those really dark moments where Doug had said the very worst thing that he ever could have said to me, I fixed him. I drank an entire bottle of wine by myself, full well knowing exactly what I was doing, but I didn't care. The next day, I didn't feel so good, and I knew I deserved it, and he needed to go to the gym. Um, at the time, the University of Montana had a gym for people with disabilities, and Doug would go there three days a week to do his exercises, and we had just gotten a brand new puppy. And so I took Doug to the university, I parked the car there, I took the puppy and our older dog and walked over to Bonner Park, and I was just, you know, going over everything in my head and, you know, all this pain, these words that he had just said, and I was like, God, I forgive him, I forgive him, I forgive him, because I know there's power in the forgiveness, and if you don't forgive, there's just so much poison that gets into your system and your spirit if you don't forgive. And so I'm just walking through all of this process, and I start back to the university, knowing it's almost time for Doug to be done with his exercise. And this man starts walking towards me, and he's asking me about the dogs. And so I explain to him why we're there. You know, my husband has a brain injury. And all of a sudden, this random stranger starts talking to me in brain injury rehab lingo. I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And I said to him, I said, you seem to know a lot about brain injury rehabilitation. And he said, yeah, I'm a brain injury rehabilitation specialist. <laughs> uh, what are the odds? <clears throat> and we talk a little bit more. And from the time Doug was old enough to run a chainsaw, he did. He loved his chainsaw. I was literally in the middle of making a wedding cake. And this man looks at me and he steps back and he says, 
you're not just surviving your husband's accident. You're thriving your husband's accident. And I thought to myself, right. That's why I have this lovely meal. Because I'm being thriving. I said, I don't think so. He said, yep, you are absolutely thriving. And I just, no, there is no way. He said, I see you juggling a calendar, a cake, a chainsaw, and a couple of other things. But after he said cake and chainsaw, I didn't care what else I heard. I said, excuse me? And he said, yes, Tammy, you are juggling a calendar, a cake, a chainsaw, and dot, dot, dot. It's like, how could this random stranger know anything about a cake and a chainsaw in my life? And he says, well, I got go. Bye. That was my elbowing moment. That was the moment that God told me that he saw me. That he saw my pain, he saw my suffering, and he acknowledged that I was doing a whole lot better than I thought I was. I thought I was absolutely failing. I was failing God, I was failing my husband, I was failing the Christian community, but yet every one of us is has sin. We're all dealing with something, and we keep that our sins from allowing us to draw close to God in the manner that he would have us draw close to him. And this last Sunday, he gave me this beautiful vision. It was, you know how oftentimes they will put a film, a protective film over windshields, glass, whatever it is that they don't want marred. And I saw God just rip this film off this windshield. And he said, I'm bringing you clarity, but it's also as we put those films across us, across our hearts to protect ourselves, we also keep the good stuff from getting in. We keep the pain out, but we also keep the good stuff out that he wants to bring to us. And so I just really feel as we've gone through this, this event, we're now 10 years out, that <clears throat> I built walls around my heart because I didn't want any more pain coming in. And even towards my husband, I didn't want... I didn't want to receive his love because it also meant I was also receiving his pain at the same time. And so I just really see how God wants to come in into all of our lives and just to bring in all of this restoration. And <clears throat> Yesterday morning, um, he gave me Psalms 116. This starts at three. It says, death once stared at me in the face. I was close to slipping into its dark shadows. I was terrified and overcome with sorrow. I cried out to the Lord, God, come and save me. He was so kind, so gracious to me. Because of his passion towards me, he made everything right and he restored me. And he wants to do that for every one of us. He wants us to come into that place of wholeness and restoration. Will we be perfect? Not on this side of eternity, but he absolutely wants us to come into wholeness and restoration. Tammy's story was a miracle story, and we loved it so much that we wanted to make this an episode on Patreon for Story Within the Story. She's actually written a book called When Hope Rises. Amy's going to talk with her about that book. She's also going to talk with her about what it's like being a caregiver today, how Doug is doing today. And I have to tell you, one of the things that I loved about Tammy's story was how she shared the difficulty of taking care of her husband after this accident. Yes, she was resting in, wow, God, this is a miracle, and you saved his life. 
but wow, it's also really, really hard. And I can't do this on my own. And just her walking through, you know, even saying at one point, I mean, it just would have been easier if he had gone on. This is so hard for her to just be so vulnerable in that moment. Mm-hmm. It just, Absolutely. And my heart just went out to her because I can only imagine how difficult it is caring for someone who has been through such a traumatic brain injury, having to relearn so many different things, and you're taking care of them all throughout the process. There's no nurse there every day right. to take mm-hmm. care. You're mm-hmm. the nurse. You're the caregiver now. And so I just really appreciated that. It reminds me a little bit of Katie Crawford's story mm-hmm. several episodes right. back where you have this miracle, mm-hmm. a true miracle where in that case, her son lived. In this case, Tammy's husband lived. But yet you're left with a lot of difficulty and you're like, okay, God, how can I appreciate and live in the miracle moment when every day is so challenging? Mm -hmm. I really appreciated Tammy seeing how God prepared them. I loved hearing her go back and say, here are the things that God did leading up. And we've talked about that in writing our own stories, Mm -hmm. you know, going back and remembering God's presence in different circumstances because he is preparing you for something great. I was also very convicted by my lack of faith. You know, we've talked about from Mary Kay's episode about faith being a gift and exercising that faith. It's a muscle. Yeah. We've talked yeah. about that. And mm-hmm. so you've got to use the gift of faith in your own life. And and she never gave up. Right? No. She was calling I mean, on the Lord. She was believing for a miracle. And he answered. But going back to that, when she references so many things in the beginning, some of you may have heard her talk about prophetic words, and you may have heard her talk about how she knew God was going to do this and that. And for some of you, that may be brand new information. You're like, what is that? And that's super weird. (laughs) And that's okay, because that's the point of hearing other people's stories and to know that God can meet us in those places, even if you don't quite understand it, God is speaking. And when we listen, when we hear his voice, he may give us crazy faith. Like Tammy had crazy faith to know that on day 21, I wrote all of this down, yes. it was wild, <laughs> that she really sensed that he was going to wake up on day 21. And she was reading Daniel and it it all tied in together. And lo and behold, He woke up on the 21st day miraculously. And to where some, that may be a big coincidence to us as believers, it is God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so as we wrap up Tammy's story, our encouragement and challenge to you today is to look for God. If you feel like there's one place where he's speaking to you that seems a little wild and crazy, pay attention and ask him what it's about and just see what happens. See what God does this week. You know, one of her quotes that we love that we'll leave you with. That's the title is There's Always Room for Hope. And so today we want to stand with you in prayer and in hope. Thank you for listening. We would love for you to share this story with someone that needs hope, that needs encouragement, that needs to believe all over again. And so we are so thankful when you share these stories. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.